Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, good afternoon, brethren. Great to see uh, so many of you. It's been a while since we've all been together. And greetings to those who are online or who will be watching this later. Um, I don't know, brethren, if you heard the tale of the resurrected cat. Did you hear about that one? You did? Yes. And this is actually a a true story. Uh, Here's the headline. Frozen and unresponsive. Cat brought back to life by veterinarians in Montana. I'll just read a bit of the article here for you. Fluffy, who was found buried under a mountain of snow in Montana, was saved by veterinarians. So this is a a cat that got caught up in this uh, cold, terribly cold weather and actually froze to death. And she was uh, found and then brought back to life. So it says here, miracle in Montana, an essentially frozen and unresponsive cat found completely buried under a mountain of snow has been saved. The injured cat named Fluffy was found on January 31st and brought to an animal clinic of Kalispell veterinarian Dr. Javon Clark. Fluffy was caked in ice, frozen, and unresponsive when she came into Clark's office. I've never seen this. I've been in practice for almost 24 years, and she was actually caked in ice like those ice balls were caked on her hair, on her, on her, all the way around her, 360 degrees all the way around. Her temperature was so low, our thermometer wouldn't read it. That's how cold she was. So we know it was less than 90. I guess that's in Fahrenheit. Cats' temperatures are normally around 101 degrees, said the veterinarian. And he goes on to say they used heating pads and heating cages to try to resuscitate her. Then it says the cat gained consciousness at the clinic that afternoon, but the veterinarian still sent Fluffy to an emergency clinic because her temperature remained extremely low. On Tuesday, the animal clinic posted photos of Fluffy on Facebook to share her story of success and survival. Her temperature was very low, but after many hours, she recovered and is now completely normal. So this block of ice that they found, they managed to bring her back to life, and they just say it's amazing. And then they made this statement that he says, it is really true that with hypothermia, they aren't dead until they are warm and dead. So as long as it was in that ice block, there was hope. Uh, But if they brought her back to normal temperature and she was dead, then truly she would be dead. So they go on to say just what a great miracle it is and that she's now back home with her owners uh, and her eight remaining lives. go to Matthew 24, because we know that this unseasonably cold weather or record-breaking cold temperatures is going to be repeated spiritually. In Matthew 24 and verse 12, Christ tells us that because iniquity shall abound, the agape, the agape love, of many of the brethren shall wax cold. So this is the forecast. 
This is the spiritual forecast that we're going to have record low temperatures spiritually. And in verse 13, he says, but he that shall endure this bitter cold unto the end, the same shall be saved. And in verse 10, we just get a sense of this record cold, what the climate will be like. In verse 10, he says, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. So this is the forecast from our Lord. And like Fluffy the cat, what this is saying is some of us will be frozen to death. Not all, but some. And we're going to be facing this terrifying time. And yet Christ is telling us, despite this time, despite the treachery, we must be fearless. That there's an expectation that God has that we must be fearless. And not only must we be fearless, we must encourage Judah to be fearless. So our job is to go to Judah and tell them not to fear. So how is that going to work if we're telling them don't be afraid and we're terrified? It has to ha- we have to do this with an authentic voice. We have to be fearless so that we can tell Judah to be fearless. Look at Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. And in Isaiah 35 and verse 4, here's the instruction. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. So, so let's get our, our, our mouths around these words. Let's get comfortable with these words. Where in a time of terror, in a time when people are surrounded by terror, we have the ability with an authentic voice to say, be strong. Don't be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. So, Implied in this is our belief that our God is a God of vengeance, that our God will take care of business, that our God will come and save us. It's because of our conviction in these words that we can convict others with these words. Look at Isaiah 40, chapter 40, where we know that the New Testament part of Isaiah begins, what we call second Isaiah, and look at the mission. Someone is told, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. So God's people are in a very, to say uh, euphemistically, uncomfortable situation. And someone is to comfort them. That despite all appearances, someone is telling them it's okay. Verse 2, speak you comfortably to Jerusalem. So someone has a message where the focal point in the future is Jerusalem. All eyes are on Jerusalem. There's a hatred for Jerusalem. And yet somebody in this time is speaking comfortably to Jerusalem. And cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. So there was a purpose to this warfare. It's now over. That her iniquity is pardoned. So according to the covenant, she 
deserve, she earned this punishment. And someone who understands what God is doing on the earth, it says that the wicked will never understand, but the wise will understand. And so there will be a, a people of wisdom that are able to tell her what is going on and that it's over, that her iniquity has been pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins, according to the covenant. In verse 6, the voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? That all flesh is grass. So the wise understand, no matter how powerful, no matter how glorious man is, he's grass. Cry that all flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. Verse 9. O Zion, that brings the gospel, get you up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that brings the gospel, lift up your voice with strength. So someone has the gospel, and they're not afraid to speak the gospel with tremendous power, with authority, with conviction. O Jerusalem that brings the gospel, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, shout, and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that this message is a disagreeable message. This is a triggering message, and it triggers hatred. And yet the wise are not compromising. The wise are unapologetic. The wise preach this good news to Jerusalem with conviction and they shout it. Shout, lift it up, don't be afraid. So how can, how can we be telling Jerusalem not to be afraid if we're terrified? So here's a people that love not their lives to the death. Because what we have to say is so true and so right, nothing will stop us from preaching this gospel. Lift it up, don't be afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. So we have to organize our mind, organize our lives, so that we can fulfill the scriptures. The script is written. The parts have been outlined. We just have to decide on the theater of the world stage what parts will we play? Because once we understand the parts that we will play, we can then study the script and understand our script. But if we don't understand the part or we don't understand the script, we're going to botch our performance. My wife and I were in Miami this week, and we had a nice uh, opportunity to have dinner at a nice restaurant, lovely dinner. At the end of the dinner, the waiter came and offered dessert. I'm like, no, I'm good. So my wife said, well, let me see the menu. Waiter says, well, no menu. I'll tell you what's on it. And he started to describe the different options. My wife's like, nah, nah. And then he came to this interesting option, kalamchi cake. My wife is like, what is that? Kalamchi cake. So can you describe it? He says, well, he started to describe it. And my wife says, is that cheesecake? No, no, no. Kalamchi cake. Can I see it? He said, okay. They went to the back, and he brought out calamity cake. And my wife looks at it, and she says, oh, you mean key lime cheesecake. It was key lime cheesecake. But these are Spanish people, 
and struggling with the, the language, he thought it was kalamchi cake. And so if you don't understand what you're saying, then you're not going to communicate effectively. Do we understand our, our message? Or are we out there offering kalamchi cake? And people have no idea what we're talking about. We need to understand our message. We need to be effective in communicating it. So I want to today encourage us to overcome our fear. That the world is unstable. It's becoming more and more dangerous. People are becoming more and more fearful. We mustn't be in that category. We have to get our script right and we have to speak it with conviction. There is, you know, as the world is becoming more and more dangerous, people are becoming more and more outraged over immoral behavior. But this outrage is selective outrage. They're, they're outraged on cue. So they're, they're told what to be outraged about. So dressing up in blackface 30 years ago, that is outrageous. But destroying a newborn child, that's okay. Climate change is outrageous. But jihad coming into our countries, that's fine. And I think this uh, past week with the State of the Union, it was very interesting to see how people responded. That when we see an eight-year-old child Eight-year-old girl beating cancer. Nobody's, they're not going to stand for that? When we see 3,000 young girls and young women relieved and escaping sexual slavery, they're not going to stand for that? But when, we, when we're going to talk about more women in Congress than ever before, then we're going to stand up and cheer and USA, USA. We can get up for that. We can get up for ourselves. We're willing to celebrate ourselves, but we won't celebrate life. Selective outrage. Speaking of immorality. But these people who speak of immorality are evil. They are evil people. And they don't care about life. And they don't care about girls. And they don't care about you. And if we can turn selective outrage on and off, what it's giving us an indication is how easy the masses can be manipulated and how Christianity and the word of God can become outrageous. That the word of God will be seen as immoral and we can turn on the switch and turn on the masses and, and, and hatred will be just switched on and off like this. I mean, I just, I'm trying to get my head around a newborn baby being destroyed being okay. And the people who say that's okay, wanting to define for us morality, what's moral and what's immoral. In Romans 1, Romans 1, and verse 28, Paul writes, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. 
this is what happens. And, and we should have been able to predict this unnatural affection, this ability to destroy life. We should have been able to predict this the moment they took prayer out of the school. When they did that, we should have been able to say, you know what? Society or Western society, the Western world, they're going to give themselves over to a reprobate mind. If we're not teaching God, if God does not define morality, if we leave it to man to define what's right and wrong, then evil will become good and good will become evil. So as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding. These are the people that are running our countries. These are the people that are running our cities. These are the people who want to tell us what is moral and immoral. This is their DNA. Without understanding. Covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. In another place he says how cursed men are when they condemn others for the very things that they do. God wants righteous judgment. If we're going to condemn others, we better not be doing the things they're doing. So let's unpack this. Let's get into this. And what I want to do is, at the end of this message, that we are convicted to be fearless. That we, we have a message which is unwelcome. It's not a welcome message. It's not for cowards. So we have a choice. It's courage or cowardice. There's nothing in between. It's Christianity or cowardice. There's nothing in between. So let's understand why we mustn't fear and how we must seek righteousness instead. And Deacon Jan mentioned that in his opening prayer. Let's go to Matthew 10. We were in Luke for the scripture reading. But let's see Matthew Chapter 10. In Matthew 10, and we'll break into the middle of the passage here in verse 16, where he says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. So there's the setup. We are being sent with a message, and we're in the midst of wolves. These are dangerous, vicious animals, and sheep are the prey of wolves. And Christ is telling us, I'm doing this. I'm sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. So there is a, a, a conviction that we have to have to harmlessness. We will not harm anybody. But at the same time, we need to be aware of the landscape and, and, and the nature 
of who we are facing. There's a boy, young boy in grade six, and he was constantly bullied by these older boys. And this one boy confronted him, a bully. And so the young lad drew a line. And he said to the bully, if you think you can take me on, cross that line. And so the bully just crossed the line immediately. The young grade six boy said, this is wonderful. Now we're on the same side. And that's the kind of wisdom that we have to have. That you have to understand the nature of who we're dealing with and and understand how to navigate this. Here in verse 17 he says, But beware of men. And unfortunately, many of these men that we have to beware of are our own brethren. Beware of men, and we can read into that, our own brethren. The love of many will wax cold. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. So they will betray you. And they will scourge you in their synagogues or in their assemblies or gatherings. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. The testimony of Christ is against them and the Gentiles. It's not a message that is warm and fuzzy for the Gentiles. That we have to understand what God's plan is, and we need to tell the Gentiles that God's plan revolves around Israel. There's a door open to them to repent and be grafted into Israel, but God's plan is not for the Gentiles. It's for Israel. And this is going to be an unwelcome message. And the testimony is around our speech. So we're not going into this battle with weapons. Our weapon is our speech. our, Our weapon is truth. We're going into this battle with the word of God. And we are just exegeting the word of God. So we're just telling them this is what the word of God says. We're not making things up off the top of our head. And, and making things that we would like it to be this way. In many ways, in many cases, the word of God is against us. The word of God condemns us. We, we have a whole lot of repenting to do. The word of God cuts both ways. Our job is to be faithful to the word of God. We need to read it, believe it, do it, and deliver it. And oh well, if people are offended. Our job is just to deliver the message. And so this testimony, which John says in Revelation, that he is a a companion with us in the testimony of Christ, which caused him to be exiled and caused his brethren to be martyred. And he says, I'm your companion and I'm your brother in this testimony. So this is all about what we say and having the courage and the conviction to say it, to deliver the word of God faithfully. So it's going to be a testimony against these leaders and against the Gentiles. Because the kingdom of God is going to bring down the kingdom of the Gentiles. The kingdom of God is going to be restored to Israel. And if you're a king in this world, if you're a leader in this world, if you have power in this world, or you're a Gentile with an ego that is unwilling to accept that God's plan revolves around Israel, 
this message is an unwelcome message. He says, but when, he doesn't say if, he says, but when they deliver you up, the, the message is so unwelcome, the message is so triggering, that when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. It's all about the spoken word. This is all about the spoken word. It's all about what we say. It has nothing to do with us personally. It has to do with the message that we deliver. Who we deliver it to, what we're saying. To some people we're delivering it, it's an encouragement. Your warfare is over. God is for you. Your God reigns. In other cases, it's not for them. It's against them. You are wrong. Your kingdom will be shattered. You will become nothing unless you repent. Because the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. It's all about what we say. But take no thought how or what you shall speak. Meaning, we should be so full of the word of God that in the moment, we will be inspired to say what needs to be said to who in that moment. So take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. So we'll just understand being sheep among the wolves, the particular situation we're in, and the scriptures will come to mind. We're, we're not going to say what comes out of our imagination. In the moment we're in, we will know this is a Micah moment. Oh, this is an Isaiah moment. This is a Peter moment. This is a Paul moment. This is a Moses moment. And we're just going to be giving them the scriptures. For it is not you that speak, but the spirit of your father, which speaks in you. And I'll go further to say, the same spirit that spoke to the prophets of old, that spoke to the apostles, that we will be repeating them. And so it will be the spirit of God in us that gives us that insight and understanding what to say. And we're not going to be making up stuff out of our minds. We're going to be giving them the word of God. Now, because of that, verse 21, and the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. To death. So we have many churches of God. They're all our brothers. They're all our sisters. And yet something happens here that even in families, there's betrayal. It is such a fearful time. That's what Christ is trying to tell us. It is such a fearful time. That even your own family, for the sake of their skin, will betray you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. And the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And what we really have to understand here, brethren, is the role of emotion in our lives. That emotions are tied to goals. Uh, said another way, the reason we're emotional is because we're goal-oriented beings. The moment we're born, we're born with goals. We're seeking something. And our emotional system is connected to our goal-oriented system. So as we seek our goals and accomplish our goals, 
this triggers positive emotion. So all of our positive emotions are tied to the fact that we're getting closer to that which we're pursuing. Conversely, all of our negative emotions are triggered when our goals are interfered with. Because of that, the two fundamental emotions are fear and desire. That as we move toward what we want, it triggers positive emotion. As we move away from what we want, it triggers fear and all the negative emotions rooted in fear. So what we see here are people with different goals. That I don't want to die. And if somebody comes to me, because fundamentally the root goal that I have is to stay alive. The moment a baby is born, it's born with that imperative to live. This is a a root goal. And so anything that interferes with my desire to live is going to trigger fear. So you come knocking at my door, guns drawn, and maybe a few videos of what you've done to the people before me. I don't want to go through that. If it means giving up my brother and giving up my sister so that I can achieve my goal of life, happy to do so. Unless life is not my goal. Unless somewhere along the line, my goal has transcended the physical life. And my goal is eternal life. Now you come knocking at my door, guns drawn, breathing threats, asking me to turn over my brother or my sister. You're knocking on the wrong door. Is, is that all you've got? You're going to threaten me with death or to, to torture this body? And you've got nothing else? I, I thought you had more. Because unless you can take away my eternal life, I'm not interested. And so what we see here are people who are willing to go to the grave because they have a higher goal. And people who are willing to send others to the grave because they have a lower goal. So we can, basically we can read people's minds by their emotional expression. You show me your emotional expression and I can figure out your goals because the two are inextricably linked. And so this is why at the State of the Union, and I don't know if you saw it, but when you see talking about late-term abortion and infanticide, and they are stone-cold, full of despising. We can figure out their goal. And when we talk about women, more women than ever being in Congress, and they're jumping up and cheering, we can figure out their goal. It's power. They don't care about people. They care about power. And as they move towards power, they're thrilled. And anything that interferes with their power, they're furious. And so we just put these two, coin, two sides of the same coin together, goals and emotions, and we can figure people out. But we can figure ourselves out as well. We have to have a higher goal than just this life. Verse 22. And you shall be hated of all men. Why? For my name's sake. The Holy One of Israel. That when you preach the Holy One of Israel... This interferes with their power goals. They want power. And you're saying, no, no, no. Power belongs to the Holy One of Israel. And he's bringing the kingdom to Israel. And you will be hated. You will be hated for my name's sake. But he that endures to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee you into another. For truly I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel 
till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. So we have to look to Christ's example and see that he had a goal higher than simple survival. He had a vision beyond this life. He was focused on life after the resurrection. And so we're not above him. We can't, we can't expect that somehow we will get better treatment than him. So we need to look to his example. After all, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to follow Christ. So we need to look to our Lord's example and follow him. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master. This is our goal. This is, this is the goal that we have to have. I want to be like my master. I want to be a Christian. So every confrontation that we have, every opportunity that we have, every situation that arises, we're asking ourselves, what would my Lord do? Because I want to be like him. This is the goal. And so what other people would look at and feel sorry for us, oh, it's, so, it's too bad that he had to go through that. We're rejoicing because we're like our master. And as he was glorified, we will be glorified. And so they don't understand what gives us joy. They don't see what we see, but we see what the master saw. And so it's enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more shall they call him or call them of his household? So don't be surprised if we are labeled with all kinds of pejorative terms, even if we are called children of the devil, by the, these people who want to tell us what more, what's moral and what's immoral. So if they've called Christ Satan, what are we expecting? So a whole narrative will be spun around us where everyone's going to believe we're totally evil people. And when you interfere with people's reputations... This is devastating. No one wants their reputation destroyed. But Christ is saying, oh well. They did it to me, they'll do it to you. Then he says this, verse 26. Three times he's going to say this. This is the first time. Fear them not, therefore. So, because they are so wicked, they are so beyond the pale, that they will call Christ Satan. Because of that, they should have no credibility in our eyes. Whatever they say, it just, they, they are irrelevant. They, they've, they've, dis, they've displayed their irrelevance by calling Christ Satan. The minute you do that, we have no regard for your opinion. So we know your fate. Therefore, do not fear them. And here, although it's um, translated as an imperative, do not fear them. In the Greek, it's actually in the subjunctive. It's saying, because of this, you shouldn't fear them. Because of this, I hope you won't fear them. It's not saying we won't fear them. It's saying, I hope you can put two and two together and realize you shouldn't fear them. So it's in the subjunctive. Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. It's all going to be exposed. And it's going to be quite surprising how wicked people are 
when we actually see them for who and what they are. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. And they're doing work that wicked people work hard to hide. And so we have to be learning to be transparent. That we're not doing anything in the closet. Or whatever we're doing in the closet, if they come in with a flashlight, they're just going to find a closet full of clothes. That's, that's what we put in the closet. There's nothing hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak you in light. Again, the emphasis is on what we say and our courage to say it. So Christ is going to tell us things in darkness, and he's saying to us, take that and speak it publicly. And do not, do not back down. Don't be afraid. So what we're recruited into is speaking. Learning the truth, living the truth, speaking the truth. And that last part is going to take a lot of courage. Because it's, it's unwelcome. It's an unwelcome message. So the Holy Spirit will give us what to say, but what we say is not going to be made up. It's going to be given to us, and then we will say it. What I tell you in darkness, that speak you in light. And what you hear in the air, in the ear, that preach you upon the housetops. In other words, don't be afraid. This message is so glorious. This message is so powerful. All we want to do is preach it, and we're not afraid. You're going to call Christ Satan? I have no respect for you. You, you won't be here very long. You're, you're like grass. So let me, before you interrupted me, let me continue what I was saying. Because what I say will endure forever. Your very presence is temporary. Now he comes in verse 28. And fear not. And now he switches to the imperative. So before it was in the subjunctive, you shouldn't fear. Now it's in the imperative. Do not fear. This is a command. Christ is now commanding us. First, there was this hope that we would put two and two together and not fear. Now there's the command. And fear not them which kill the body. Wow. If there's anybody to fear, I would think it's those who could actually kill me. Wouldn't you? I mean, there's a lot of people to fear. But when we're talking about someone who can actually kill you, I think now, now, now it's reasonable to be afraid. And the command... The command from Christ is you better not do that. If you're afraid of people who can kill the body, then you are disobeying. You are unfaithful. I am unfaithful if I'm afraid of those who can kill the body. And I, I took the opportunity this week to, while I was in America, uh, to go to a, a shooting range. That's something I've never done before. I thought, I, I just want to see what this is all about. Uh, being a Canadian, I have no familiarity with guns. And uh, got to fire some interesting weapons. And, and uh, the guy, the person who was uh, training me, uh, was actually deployed in Afghanistan. And, and explained to me what these bullets can do. The, the armor that they can pierce. And how some, once they hit the body, how they just explode inside the body. And the damage that they are designed to do. I, I have a whole new respect for the people who are putting their lives on the line every day so that we can be comfortable here. Because they know what they're facing. They, they know the weapons that the enemy has, and they're going into the line of fire. 
to protect us. And somehow they have been trained not to fear. And God is telling us we need even more courage than that. That the darts that are coming at us are are, are coming from the devil himself. And we need to be fearless. So how do we do this? You know, if anything, now that I understand what some of these bullets can do, I'm more fearful of guns. And yet I come and I read the words of my Lord that says, don't be afraid of them. So something has to shift here and here. We have to set our sights higher than this physical life. We have to die already. There's a place where we're already dead. And so to threaten someone who's already dead with death is redundant. So this is the command. It's not in the subjunctive. It's in the imperative. Do not fear them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. So there's a different kind of death. There's the physical death, and then there's death, the second death. So unless you can administer the second death, we're not afraid of you. The first death, it's, it's fluffy death. It's fluffy death where we can just warm you up and bring you back. Second death is death. That's cold, hard death. So don't be afraid of those who can only do what we would call the first death. Be afraid of the second death. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. This is the level of trust that we have to have. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows you intimately. He's got your back. And he's got your future. And he's, in his design, you live forever. And ever. And ever. And ever. And this is what he has for you, an eternal future. And he's saying, don't worry. Even even the sparrows God looks after. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now again, the third time. Fear you not. Again, it's in the imperative. This is a command. Fear you not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And it's like Christ is trying to tell us something here that it's just hard for us to comprehend. Our value to God. That there's a vision that God has around us individually and collectively that is phenomenal. And Christ is not able to tell us in detail what all of this is, but he just trusts that we will understand the way he looks after the sparrows and nothing happens to them without his permission. We've got to trust we're looked after. It's okay. Whosoever therefore, notice this, verse 32, shall confess. Back to speech. All about what you're willing to say, what you're willing to preach in the midst of wolves. Will you speak up? Or in a highly politicized, politically correct environment, hmm, I think I'll go quiet on this one. Let the trouble pass over. Don't want to stand up. Don't want to be the one who sticks out. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, hostile men, wolves. He's sending us as sheep in the midst of wolves. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, 
him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before vicious men, men who hate Christ, men who call the Christ of the Bible Beelzebub, are we going to regard them as something significant? Or or do we realize that in calling Christ Satan, they've sealed their fate? And they're just a temporary phenomenon. They'll be gone. So whoever will deny me were unwilling to speak before men. Him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Think not that I've come to send peace on earth. (laughs) I actually thought that was what Christ came to do. Goodwill to all men and peace on earth. And this is the message that I've heard prior to coming into the church. Christ is all about peace. He comes, don't think that I came to send peace. I came to send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. And I came to get you to speak inspired speech in the midst of wolves. Triggered speech. Don't think for a minute that this is going to be easy. Don't, don't think for a minute that you can just waltz into the kingdom. That do nothing. What, what is the... Uh, the Green New Deal, that we're going to look after those who are unable and unwilling to work. Is Christ like that? Hey, you're unwilling to work, but you can inherit the kingdom and eternal life. We've got to work. And our work is preaching this gospel, this, this unwelcome gospel. So don't think that I came to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. And a lot of people misinterpret this. And they think that Christians must take up swords. But he just said, you must be as harmless as a dove in the midst of wolves. As wise as a serpent, as harmless as a dove, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep don't carry swords. Sheep have nothing sharp. In fact, he says, as harmless as a dove. So it's not the Christian that is bringing the sword. When brother betrays brother to death, it's not the Christian putting anybody to death. The sword is being applied to the Christian. And the Christian is on the hook. Do you stand up and speak for Christ, or do you deny him? Deny him, you get a pass. Speak up for him, you get the sword. But if we read it all in context, it's clear when he's not sending peace, it is the, it's not that the Christian is not peaceful. We have to be peaceful. But there is a sword. He says, he explains, For I have come to set a man at variance against his father. There's going to be conflict in the family. Now, when he comes to set a man at variance against his father, it should be obvious to us that the father is the Christian. And the man is the wolf. The man is the one who's triggered by the father and willing to put the father to death. And the daughter against the mother. Should be clear, the mother is the Christian. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So, so it is the preaching of the gospel that triggers the wolf to pull out the sword, mixing my metaphors, and slaughter the sheep. 
And we can see this. He goes here in verse 36. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. Or we could say a Christian's foes shall be they of his own household. That, that this, this thing that we're recruited into, it's so significant. And Satan hates it so much, he is seeking to stamp it out. And so as the world heats up, we have to be convicted and harmless at the same time. We just we know what we know. And we, we can't apologize for the word of God. And we cannot back down from the word of God. And if that triggers violence, it's not on us. We're just telling you this is what the word of God says. This is, what, this is how we put the, the scriptures together. He that loves father or mother more than me, so when your family turns against you, family turns against me, we have a decision. Do we deny Christ and put father or mother ahead of Christ? He tells us, he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In fact, if you put verse 37 with 35, it's clear that the Christian does no harm. The Christian is just convicted by the word of God. And the word of God is what creates the variance. He that takes not his cross and follow after me and follows after me is not worthy of me. So there's something glorious ahead. And Christ is saying, if we don't take up our cross, if we're not willing to suffer for it, we're not worthy. He that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. And so, brethren, I think here in verse 39, uh, this is where we have to get to where we've lost our lives. We've, we've, looked at the situa- we've looked at the scriptures. We see the script. We see the different roles that people are going to play on the world stage. And we realize we've lost our life. That the world is going dark, hostile, violent, and anti- anti-Christ. And so in a dark, hostile, violent, anti-Christic world, we've lost our life. And so once we get here, we become fearless. So we have to become fearless in the mind before we can be fearless in life. The blueprint is here. We have to reconfigure our goals. What is it that we really want? And it's not to say, like the Thessalonians, we'll just sit back and just wait for Christ to return and do nothing. He that doesn't work to support his family is worse than an infidel. So we still have to have our physical goals. It's just that we have a higher goal. We see something much higher. And so we're willing to give up this life. And in fact, just to reinforce that the Christian is the harmless one in this conflict. The Christian does not bring a sword. Christ was quoting Micah. Let's go to Micah 7. Micah 7 and verse 1, the prophet writes, Woe is me. I'm done for. I've, I've lost my life. Woe is me. For I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape leanings of the vintage, 
there is no cluster to eat. It, it's all gone. My soul desires the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth. And this is the future that we're facing. Where people who are good, who stand for what's right, they're gone. The good man is perished out of the earth. And there is none upright among men. It's a world full of corruption and corrupt people. They talk a good game. They talk about what's moral and what's immoral. But their heart is full of darkness. And this is the future. They all lie in wait for blood. They're all bloodthirsty. doesn't matter what stripe they are. And you can tell that by the way they respond when you tell them we've rescued 3,000 girls from sexual slavery. And they couldn't care less. Because they all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. It's not just that they'll do evil. It's not just that they'll do evil with one hand. It's not just that they'll do evil with two hands. It's that they will do evil with two hands earnestly. That's who they are. This is who the gospel must be preached to. The prince asks... And the judge asks for a reward. And the great man, he utters his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. The best of them is as a thorn. Harmful. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen and your visitation comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Trust you not in a friend. Put you not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. This is a time of betrayal. So unless you're with someone who's full of the Holy Spirit, you can't trust anyone. That's what Micah's saying. For the son, this is what Christ was quoting, the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, so the one rising up is the culprit. These are the ones that want to do evil with both hands earnestly. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now, just in your notes, Luke 21, 19, Christ makes the statement, in your patience possess you your souls. And that's what we need to understand. That the way we hold on to our eternal life, and that's our job here, we have eternal life, we have to hold on to it. The way we hold on to it is with patience. In your patience possess you your souls. Look now at Revelation 13. Revelation 13. And in verse 10, John writes, He that leads into captivity. So this is the time that Micah saw where they're hunting their brother with a net. Uh, People are being enslaved. People are being captured, treated, treated like they're worthless. But we see this in sight. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. So our God is a God of vengeance. And this is our message to Judah. Your God reigns. He's coming with vengeance. He's coming to right the wrongs. And he that leads into captivity shall himself go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. 
This is the word of God. So he that kills with the sword, it's coming back on you. And then he says this. Here, this insight that God is coming to put things right, in this insight is the patience and the faith of the saints. That the saints are looking at all this slaughter. We ourselves are subject to the threat of slaughter and to slaughter. And in all of this, the saints have patience. And in our patience, we possess our souls because we see the big picture. We see how this all unfolds and that God is in control. And God is allowing everything and not a hair of our head can fall to the ground without his permission. And this is where we get our patience. In chapter 14, beginning in verse 9, he says, Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. The saints understand this. There is nothing you can do to convince us to take the mark of the beast in our forehead or in our hand. I'm sorry. Like, we're willing to lose our... We, we've already thought this through. And we will lose our life in order to find it. But we're not going to try to keep our life by betraying God. And so we're not interested. No thanks. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So we're looking at all these people receiving the mark, even in our own families, and we understand where this is going. That this wrath of God will be poured out undiluted, without mixture, into the cup of his indignation. This is not good news for the world. This is the gospel that we're preaching. This is the warning message that we have to those who go with the beast. That there is a cup of wrath that you will have to drink undiluted, full of the Lord's indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment, verse 11, ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who, who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12. In this insight... In this understanding, in this foreknowledge, is the patience of the saints. This is where we get our patience from. This is how we can go through this without losing hope. That we understand how it all, we, we are in the word of God, we see the plan of God, we see how everything unfolds, and in this understanding is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. And when he says the commandments of God, we don't just mean the Ten Commandments. We mean every commandment, including fear not. So when he commands us to fear not, it is in this understanding that we fear God and not men. And we keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3. And I like the scripture reference that Deacon Jan quoted in, in your opening prayer about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The scripture says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
And that whole passage is a contrast of opposites. This will be this. This will be this. So it's like we don't have the righteousness of God. What we do have, what we notice we have, is the hunger and thirst for it. We desire it. It's our goal. And then God encourages us to say, we will be filled. That we don't have to worry about the future because the Holy Spirit has got that. And so if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we face the future. And God will give us enough Holy Spirit to address whatever the situation is. So those who do not have to go through what we will have to go through, if indeed we have to go through it, will not receive the measure of spirit that we will receive. So we're looking at the future with today's level of spirit. Instead of looking at the future and saying God will provide. We will do exploits in the name of the Lord. And he will fill us, as long as we hunger and thirst for it, he will fill us with his righteousness. And we will, we will fulfill his will. In Colossians 3, verse 1, he says, If you then be risen with Christ, if this is true, we've been baptized, we've come up from the watery grave, we've given our life to Christ, if all of that is true, seek those things which are above. Now your emotional system works completely differently. If we're seeking what's in this life, and someone's going to take away from us what's in this life, we're going to panic. We're going to get angry. We're going to get depressed. And all of those negative emotions are rooted in the fact that we have goals that are oriented only in this life. Christ here is commanding us, instructing us through Paul, to seek those things which are above. Once our goal orientation is above eternal life, we respond very differently. Very, very differently to any situation we find ourselves in. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. And we understand that as he sits in his Father's throne, we will sit in his throne. As he overcame, we will overcome. So this is where our head is, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above. There it is. There's our goal orientation. It's, not about, it's nice. Come on. This life is wonderful. To be human. To enjoy the things that we can enjoy. To be Christian as well. Where instead of uh, lying, stealing, sleeping around, ruining our lives, we have joy-filled lives. Those of us who are married, faithful spouses, good children, we work hard in our jobs. We, we live in, this. for those of us who live in the West, I realize some might be on the internet that don't have what we have in the West. They have other things. In fact, in a way, we should be envying them uh, because they're not distracted. But to be a Christian in the West right now, it's a wonderful blessing. We can really enjoy life, realizing it's going away. It's going away. But if all we have is this life, when the persecution sets in and these things are taken away from us, and this is all we had, this is all we hoped for, then we will be of all men most miserable. We have to be people such that we've already lost our lives. We've already given our lives to Christ. So it's now just a matter of how it plays out. It might play out differently for me than it will for you. But it's just a matter of how it plays out. Because we've set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. 
We enjoy things on the earth, but our affection is on things above. Here it is. For you are dead. You're dead. I'm dead. This is, we're free. All of the worry, all of the anxiety, all of the fearfulness that people have, if they dare, look into the future. We don't have that. Why don't we have that? Because we're dead. We've already played this out. We've got the script. I've read this like uh, in Hollywood. I think they send the script out to actors and say, would you be willing to play this role? And the actor will read the script and say, oh, this is such a wonderful, dynamic role. I'm, uh, yes, I'm in. Okay? So it's like that. We, we read the script and it's like, oh, we're dead. But we're alive. Forever. You're dead and your life, you're dead but your life, so you're dead but you're not dead. You're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. This is what we're looking for. This is our goal. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. So we're going to live a certain way because our goal, our orientation, is eternal life with Christ. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication or adultery or any kind of sexual immoral behavior get rid of it uncleanness inordinate affection evil concupiscence and covetousness which is idolatry so all of this is idolatry all of this uncleanness is the worship of satan and it's hidden but it's coming out and we're seeing now the truth That a human being can be born and we'll kill it. That's the truth. It was hidden for decades. This isn't new. It's going back to Baal worship. It's not new. This is Molech worship. It's just coming out now. It cannot be in us. We, We cannot be like ancient Israel that talks about Yahweh and then worships Baal talks about Yahweh and then throws their children in the fire, hoping for Baal's grace. We've got to get rid of all this. So mortify your members which are upon the earth. Verse 6. For which thing's sake, because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. And they want us to believe that, oh, you're in Christ. You can do these things. It's okay. You're in Christ. The scripture is saying it's because of these things. Hide yourself from the wrath of God. Don't get involved in this idolatry. Back to Micah 7. As we conclude here. In Micah 7. In verse 6 he said, uh, Christ was quoting that a man's enemies will be of his own household. That the Christian will have a fight on their hands, even from within their own family. That's the time we're heading into. And then in verse 7, he says, Therefore, because my enemies are of my own household, therefore I will look unto the Lord. Who else can I look to? Because even my dearest and nearest 
will betray me for their life if they don't have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. Micah understood the resurrection. When I'm dead, I'm not really dead. I'm sleeping. So don't rejoice against me. I'll be back. And when I come back, I'll be sitting on a throne judging you. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Let's conclude in the book of Revelation. This is a tall order. And it's an unpleasant order. I'm, I'm one of these guys that I don't even want to feel a pinprick. I never want to be uncomfortable. The slightest bit of discomfort you're going to hear from me. And yet God says, don't be afraid of those even that kill the body. Actually, he doesn't say it. He commands it. So we've got a lot of ground to cover from I don't want any kind of discomfort to I don't care for my life. I just care about the word of God. I just want Christ glorified and Israel redeemed and the plan of God unfolding on earth. And I'm just a messenger. My life, do your worst. I'll be back. So it's a long way to go to get there. But the Holy Spirit will take us there. And it's required. And in fact, the more we do this, the more peace we have. That us, the world is just going topsy-turvy and it's it's just unraveling. And people are full of anxiety. We're at peace. In, In fact, we have joy because we see we're getting closer. It really is coming. And so it's worth doing the mental and the spiritual hard work of studying the scriptures, being down on our knees in prayer, fasting, meditating, spending time with like-minded brethren, fellowshipping, searching the scriptures, deepening our understanding of the scriptures in fellowship. It's all worth it because that's what solidifies us. And that's what enables God to give us more of his Holy Spirit. Look at Revelation 1. And in verse 17, this is where John, in vision, he hears Christ. And he turns to see who it is that is speaking. And in verse 17, he says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So he was such a glorious sight that John collapsed and fainted. And what did Christ do? He laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. Don't be afraid of men, and don't be terrified of God. God is on our side. He says, Fear not. Why shouldn't we fear? Because I am the first and the last. I started this whole process, and it's going to end the way that I say, the way that I have said. I've already declared the end from the beginning. I'm the first and the last. It's all under control. Don't be afraid. 
I am he that lives. And, and the context, the, the implication here, I am he that lives forever. I just live and live and live. That's who you're with now. I'm he that lives and was dead. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And notice this. Not only am I alive forevermore, I have the keys of hell and of death. He has the keys. What it means is, if anybody sends us to the grave, we have a Lord with the key to the grave. So we're in the grave, we're sleeping. He'll open the grave. We'll come back to life. When I was uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was a Sunday, I was going out for my long run, and it was freezing, like minus 30. You could Fahrenheit, minus 22 in Fahrenheit. Freezing cold. And I thought twice, I thought, do I go? I thought, no. I said, I got to go. Be strong. And so I went for my run from High Park, and I made sure I dressed properly. Layers, I don't want to be too hot, because that would be uncomfortable, but I have, have to be warm enough, because I don't want to freeze. So I put the right amount of layers on, had my water strapped onto me, and I uh, had a balaclava and a hat, and I went out. And I ran out eight kilometers so that I'd come back 16K. And I got to the Hilton Hotel, where I was married, actually. And I had to go inside to warm up. It was so cold. But there was a point where I was running, and it was perfect. I dressed perfectly. The sun was up, a little bit of snow. It seemed like the temperature had warmed up a little bit. It was just perfect conditions. I just felt great. On the way back, the temperature plummeted. There was a vicious wind. It was horrible. And then the, the water that I put on the water bottles I was carrying just turned to ice. I had these two blocks of ice on my kidneys. And it was just horrible. And I was running, and then I went back into High Park where I had parked, and I got lost. And I'm, I'm just thinking, I just kept thinking to myself, this will, like when I was on the road, it was okay, because if anything, I could just call a taxi. But I thought, I'm not doing that. But when I was in the park, now I was worried, because I don't know where I'm going now. And so I saw this, uh, this truck, and I, I called them over, and they wound down the window, and I said, I couldn't talk. <laughs> My mouth was frozen. And anyway, eventually they understood that I was asking, where's the restaurant? And so they told me. And I just kept thinking to myself, this will all be over soon. I'll be in my car, I'll have the heated seats on, I'll get home, I'll have a nice hot shower, it'll all be over soon. But I'm telling you, it was torture. It was terrible. But that knowledge that it's temporary, it'll all be over, that's, that's what got me through that. And I think as the temperature falls spiritually, as we move into this coldness that Christ forewarns us of, we have to realize it'll all be over. It'll all be over. And just like uh, Fluffy the cat, although we're pronounced dead, we're not dead. We're not dead until we're second death dead. And here in Revelation 20, where we'll conclude, 
Revelation 20 and verse 4, John writes, And I saw thrones. Christ promises, promises us that if we overcome the way he overcame, we will sit in his throne as he is seated in his father's throne. And so here John says, I saw thrones. This is after all of this horrendous, cold, record-breaking temperatures where brother has betrayed brother to death. And there's been a lot of idolatry and giving over to the beast. And now John says, I saw thrones. And they sat upon them. The saints sat on these thrones. The martyrs sat on these thrones. And judgment was given unto them. So the same ones that were calling Christ Beelzebub and then accusing us of being satanic, we didn't regard them because we knew they're like the grass. They're going to wither. This is all temporary. And now here's the outcome. We are sitting on thrones. Judgment has been given to us. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness, what they said, the testimony. The speech, the gospel, it's all about what we're willing to say or whether we're willing to deny Christ. They did not deny Christ. I saw these ones that were pronounced dead in this ice-cold temperature. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ and for the word of God. So we, we didn't speak what came out of our imagination. We just spoke the word of God. But it triggered it caused variance. Caused a brother to betray a brother, a daughter-in-law to betray her mother-in-law, father, a son to betray father. We just spoke the word of God. They were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, because they understood, we understood, it's not a good idea. The wrath of God is coming upon those who worship the beast. So we'll stand for God. They did not worship the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And that's just the beginning. We're just getting started. Verse 5. The rest of the dead, so those who did not die in Christ, are still going to die, just didn't die in Christ. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So those that lived through the thousand years and reigned with Christ, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. Frozen to death, frozen out, beheaded, betrayed, blessed, blessed. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power, zero power. Everyone else, the second death is hanging over them like the sword of Damocles. We don't know which way it's going to go for them. They will be truly dead if they don't comply with the word of God. For those of us in the first resurrection... The second death doesn't have this power. We are truly recipients of eternal life. 
On such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This is the vision that we have to have very clearly in mind. That everything else pales into insignificance when we see this glory with Christ eternally. And it's only when we keep our eye on the ball that we will have the courage to speak for Christ. The courage to preach God's word. The courage not to deny Christ, regardless of how cold the temperature gets. Emotions and goals are tied together. How we react emotionally betrays our goals. What makes me angry, what makes me sad, what makes me fearful is a function of my goals. What brings me joy, what brings me courage is a function of my goals. Let us set our goals on those things that are above with Christ so that no matter how cold the temperature gets, we will be like Stephen, who in the face of his martyrdom was like a bright light and not like those who give themselves over to this present life. Brother Ray read in Luke of how much more Christ or God will clothe us more than all the lilies, more than Solomon. We have to have this vision. And with this vision, be willing to preach the truth of the word of God. Let's uh, conclude in prayer as we say goodbye to our Facebook audience. And then we'll continue with the service. So please rise, brethren, as we conclude in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, great God Almighty, we come before you as a congregation ever so thankful for your presence in our lives. Ever so thankful, Father, that you've brought us together in this part of Christ's body according to your will, and you've set us in the body as it pleases you. And we thank you, Father, that we have the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for the gifts of the Spirit. We thank you for the opportunity with these gifts to edify one another, to build each other up. And, Father, we know from your word that the future is dark, that the future is violent, no matter how sophisticated men think they are. We know that they are truly going into a place of deep darkness and, and significant violence. And, Father, we pray that from the joy we get from your word, the joy we get from understanding the vision that you hold out to us, that we can face this dark future as bright lights, bright lights representing Christ in, in a generation that is just really spiritually sick and taken over by the devil. Father, we pray that we will be full of your word so that no matter who it is, we will have the ability and the courage to convey your word, that we will be faithful to the testimony of Jesus Christ, that we will never deny him, that we will never take the mark of the beast. Father, give us this Holy Spirit. Give us more of your Holy Spirit. Give us this deep love for you and this deep love for one another, that we can have confidence that we've passed from death into life 
because we love the brethren. We praise you, Father. We thank you so much. We, we ask you, Father, just please lift us up. Give us a clear vision and give us that, that conviction and the joy that comes with this vision. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your many, many blessings. And we ask your blessing now upon those who have listened, uh, upon the rest of our service, and especially, Father, that we, we may do what our Lord commands, not to fear. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, brethren, I think you remain standing for the next hymn. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.